Today we're talking Nirvana, and with apologies to uh, my grunge listeners out there, I'm not talking about Kurt Cobain and the great 90s band. Oh, man. I know. I'm sorry. Although, James, I don't know if I'd put you in the grunge camp, but we can talk about that later. (laughs) All right. Uh, We're going to look at it from the 3D printing perspective, especially when it comes to supply and demand. 3D printing allows us to envision a world where we make what we want, when we need it, and to customize it to our own specs. Uh, The only thing that we're throwing away in the process when it's all said and done is the old model of production. Yeah, and here's the thing, guys. 3D printing has been around for a few decades now. It's not exactly new. The issue that we're running up against is a lot of the solutions are still almost more imagined than realized. We're going to look at how we go from buzzword to actually solving some of those vexing questions that have been around for so many years now. And when we've got those questions, we turn to our resident 3D printing expert, the head of global on-demand manufacturing here at UPS, that's Alan Amling. And a man Alan has worked with very closely over the last few years is Rick Smith. He's the founder of Fast Radius. That's a company at the leading edge of additive manufacturing. For the listeners out there, we're integrating Fast Radius on-demand manufacturing into the UPS Global Logistics Network. We think this is going to create new opportunities for leaders of all industries around the world. So we're going to look at how far these efforts have come, how much further they need to go. And then lastly, we're going to analyze some specific use cases for 3D printing technology. That's right. Rick and Alan offer some answers on those and many more questions. They're going to also dispel some myths, uncover some truths, and offer their takes on how close we are to that 3D printed world of Nirvana. James, it smells like teen spirit in here. Cue the music. (laughs) The right idea at the right time. Miracles of logistics every day. I just challenged all of their rules. Technology is revolutionizing this industry. Changed our lives. Close your eyes for a second. New York, Hong Kong, Paris. We're more connected. You just never know where the next innovation will come from. Rules are beginning to change. This is Longitudes Radio, a podcast with today's leading experts about the future of technology, global trade, sustainability, and logistics. I'm Brian Hughes. And I'm James Rowe. Alan, I want to start with you. Uh, I think it's safe to say that 3D printing has generated its fair share of hype in a lot of uh, circles. And I think there might be some skeptics out there who think it is just that hype. Uh, Convince me that the time for 3D printing has actually come. Yeah, it's a great question. And the reality is it was hype for a long time. There was, you know back 10 years ago, and uh, people were saying that, oh, people would have 3D printers and it would be the Jetsons all over again. And the reality is there's there's more to it. And, and people were used to these plastic parts that broke and they really weren't high quality and took a long time. And it's really a disruptive innovation. So the if you if you look at down through the history of disruptive innovations, they always start as inferior, and then uh, gradually they get better and better, and then overtake the existing technology. We're seeing the same sort of trend with additive manufacturing. You have a lot of a lot of investment, a lot of brain power going into the industry, and it was really back in 2014 when we saw the technology and the materials getting to a point that, hey, this isn't just about prototypes and tchotchkes, but in real industrial production that we thought, hey, we need to get into this. And so 
Uh, we're not a manufacturer, so that's when we invested in a manufacturer, Fast Radius. And our whole vision is that this is a logistics solution. We don't see a future where additive manufacturing isn't a big part of it. And so from a UPS perspective, we can either be a victim of that change or we can be part of the change. And so all of this that we're doing with additive manufacturing is to be part of the change, to drive the change. You know, your original question was, is it good enough yet? Is additive manufacturing there? And what I would say is, for some parts, yes. For the vast majority of goods, not quite. But we see within the next five years, the, if the pace of change continues, it's going to dramatically not just reshape manufacturing, but reshape supply chains. So Rick, Allen started uh, down this path because he said some parts are good, but other parts need work. In your mind, what are some of those main areas that we need to get better at collectively to recognize the true promise of 3D printing? Yeah, so I think there are several, and I think Alan hit on a you know pretty big part of the of the previous question. You know, is this overhyped? It certainly has been overhyped. It's been through several hype cycles. The first patents for three D printing were filed thirty years ago. I think the more interesting question is why is it overhyped? And from a customer's perspective, you can contrast this to what happened with the internet. The internet came out and started to really pick up momentum in ninety four. And while it was pretty easy to grasp uh, email. You sort of see, hey, I don't have to send a letter. I can, I can, uh, I can transmit something digitally. You know, it took twenty years for Facebook and Uber and uh, Airbnb to to show up. For uh, you know, no one really envisioned Kickstarter empowering a generation of entrepreneurs or Twitter overthrowing a, a government. With additive, it's kind of the opposite, right? The you know, certainly there's a lot of fascinating things. There's been a lot of advances in manufacturing, but it's still an incredibly inefficient system. You make everything. You know, these very large batches of stuff, typically in Asia, you ship them around the world, you put them in these massive warehouses, and then you bleed out that inventory over eight to 10 years, eventually throwing away on average 30% of the parts that you made. So when you when you talk to a CEO or a head of supply chain or a head of manufacturing and you and you talk about the opportunity to just produce parts on demand, only what's needed, where it's needed closest to demand around the world in only the quantities that are needed at that point in time, there's no risks, there's no obsolescence, there's much less distribution cost, and you can also change your design at any point over the period of time. So it allows you to innovate so much faster. You know, we've been at this together with UPS for four years now. It's only been within the last six months or so uh, that we are now working with, I think, 20 of the Fortune 500, uh, launching probably 50 to 100 new products or parts in over the next 12 months. Uh, really industry-changing types of, of activities that are going to be announced. That hasn't been true until you know within the last year and, and really within the last six months. So Rick said that we had been working together for over four years, so... So why has it taken so long? And, and this is a really important part of the innovation process. So when we started back in 2015, it gave us a minimum viable product that we were actually able to go out and have real conversations with customers. And we had hundreds of conversations. And what that enabled is some learning about where the real value is, it challenged some of our initial assumptions, which, you know, some turned out to be false, incorrect. 
and we and we learned and we learned what customers needed to to cross what I call the 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 knowing doing gap. So it's it's one thing to shake your head and say, yeah, that's really cool. I want to do it. But how do I get over all these barriers? How do I figure out which parts make sense to 3D print? How are you going to guarantee the quality? How are you going to protect my IP? All these things that are the next level questions, right? And and what working together and doing the 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 early investment we did, it gave us a front row seat, not to the answers, but to the right questions. That journey started in 2013 at UPS stores, correct? That was kind of the the launching point to this journey we've gone on these last couple of years. Yeah. So the uh yeah, the UPS stores really uh kicked kicked it off with the the printers in their stores that are you know, really geared towards prototypes and models, and it's perfect for their their target audience. When we're talking about industrial production, though, when we're talking about something that goes inside a product that has a brand name associated with it, that has a guarantee behind it, maybe a service level guarantee, it's a whole different level of rigor uh, that has to go into the manufacturing process. And that is really why we reached out to Fast Radius, because it's not just about logistics. It's not just about manufacturing. It's about an ecosystem. And and that's what we're developing together is a is an ecosystem to, to bring this value to our customers. Just to kind of take this up a notch to a macro perspective, I kind of wanted to look at the economics of this. So, you know, you were just talking about a while ago, we had additive, we're making resin models, we've got independent business owners, and we'll continue to do that. But from a number perspective, what kind of volume are we talking about of work that's moving into the economy right now in terms of dollars? Yeah, so on a, on a macro level, it's pretty substantial. I think the, the industry has grown from, you know, potentially about a billion dollars in the early 2000s to five or six billion today. What's, what's more substantial is that there's several projections that take it up to over a hundred billion dollars by 2025, just a few years, uh, you know, out in front of us. And I think the, the what is driving that is the shift from prototyping, uh, which this has been a great technology. The the earliest machine from Stratasys, one of the earliest players, was called a prototyping machine. That was the name of the machine. And that's existed for 30 years. It's only been recently that you actually can move into true production volumes and quality of end-use parts, uh, which is really driving the the, the dramatic growth in in revenue. And, and as an as a specific example, you know, in terms of volume, you the the cost to print an individual part has typically been higher. Um, in almost all cases, it's higher than the cost to print, print or produce a mass-produced part because you're producing over such volume, you can spread the costs over all these little parts and get it down to a level. So above a certain level, it just doesn't make sense to print it. Um, you 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 know once you know you're going to make X number in the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, it just makes more sense to make the investment in a factory or a, a, a tool or a machine that allows you to produce a lot of the same. The same type of part for the last you know twenty years that break even level has been ten parts or maybe fifty maybe a hundred in some cases we are just over the last twelve months now looking at examples where you can produce into the tens of thousands of units at a lower cost per unit than you can mass produce the exact same uh, same type of part so so you look at companies that are saying hey you know Maybe I don't want to mass customize or customize a part to every single individual, but boy, I'd love to produce 
you know, 6,000 parts instead of 10,000 or produce four sets of 6,000 over five or 10 years versus all 25,000 parts in one single point in time and have the risk that maybe that wasn't the right design over a period of time. So I think those types of activities we're seeing uh, really dramatically pop up as well as the mass customized ideas. So uh, last year, Adidas announced a uh, a new shoe called the Future Craft uh, that has a 3D printed midsole. It's a lattice uh, midsole design uh, that they, I think they produced a couple hundred thousand in 2017. We're quickly moving to the two to three million sets of pairs of shoes per year. So it's one of the first examples of a true customized mass produced 3D printed part. And then very soon, each of those shoes is going to be able to be customized to your individual foot, your height, your weight, your stride, as well as your application. You know, am I going to use this shoe to play tennis? I need to move quickly left and right. Or am I going to play basketball where I want to jump and I want cushion when I, you know, when I return? So as 3D printing disciples, important question, do either of you have 3D printed shoes in your closet right now? I wish. I've been trying to get a pair of those Adidas shoes now for the last last year, but they're just, they're actually just now coming on the market. I think they're available only in New York or in LA right now, but the paradigm that we've lived with is best fit, right? So if I buy shoes, my clothes, uh, when I buy a tool, it's best fit. And the paradigm we're going to be moving to as the, the cost of producing something that's personalized to me is not best fit, my fit, right? It's going to be made for me. And, and, you know, I don't know if it's going to be my kid's generation or their kid's generation, but they're going to look back and say, why did you ever settle for best fit? That's just so weird to me when you could have something that's made exactly for your hand, for your foot. It's pretty amazing. Speaking of that, I was reading about, what is it, the bioscaffolding, where you can actually take some of this technology and build a scaffolding so that you can grow your tissue over it. So you talked about advancements yeah, and how yeah. we're really revolutionizing how we look at, you know, to, to make things. What are some of the advancements that you guys are getting excited about that you see happening between now and 2025, maybe? Yeah, so so there's two ways to answer the question. I'll I'll start with the most pragmatic and 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 it may be the least exciting, but it's the most important to uh, to large company uh, customers. And that is, you know, when you tell them, hey, don't make a hundred thousand parts all at once and stick them in a warehouse and throw a bunch of them away at the end and absorb all of that risk. Why don't you just make what you know those hundred thousand parts over seven years in seven different locations around the world? The first thing they say is great, but their very first question is how can you ensure that all of those parts are going to be the same? You're in different operating environments. You're in, you know, you have different machines, different climates. Like there's a lot of variability in that process. And so I think one of the biggest breakthroughs and where we're really focused uh, with, with UPS is to, to create a, a, a true uh, manufacturing system that enables consistent production of high quality end use parts so that every part that comes off of a, of a machine and through all of the, the pre and post processing steps and is identical to the other parts. And that includes the, you know, the screening and testing of those parts to ensure that every single part is coming off the same. So I think I would say, you know, it's fairly mundane, it's, but it's basically, can we, now that the technology is, is making this possible, 
how do we create processes that catch up uh, to create a supply chain for production of these parts that is that is adequate and similar to what customers, large companies expect from the rest of their supply chains for the production of other types of parts. On the on the future side, uh, there are really some amazing things that are happening. There are uh, 3D printed batteries the size of a grain of sand. Uh, there are materials including graphene, which is the strongest, lightest weight uh, material that's ever been discovered where you're able to 3D print products out of that. Healthcare, uh, uh, as an example, there are already 40,000 custom 3D printed kneecaps uh, produced every single year. Well, now they're experimenting with the material to print contains uh, pain medication and antibiotics that slow releases over a nine-month period of time. So you prevent infection and, and pain, not just, you know, in addition to having a perfectly fitted kneecap. And then finally, where this is going is, you know, companies like HP have a new technology where, uh, where not only are you able to customize the, the geometry of an object, but you're actually able to customize all of the almost atom levels, the, the voxels, which is a three-dimensional pixel. So if you think of a, of a coffee mug as, as being made up of, of you know, a billion individual pixels, now with the new technology that's coming out over the next several years, you'll be able to customize not only the, the part, but every single layer within the part down to the, I think it's a hundredth, a hundredth of an inch uh, in, in small parts. So you think of the coffee cup not as just one material, but actually a billion individual individually programmed pieces that all come together to make a physical object. If UPS wants to be a part of that future, what are the things that we need to be looking at? We need to be looking at being part of that distributed manufacturing system. So this process that Fast Radius and UPS are developing for the consistency and that we're going to be stamping out that factory in places around the world. Today, it's just in uh, Louisville and Chicago, but over the next two years, it will be in the Middle East, it'll be in Asia, it'll be in, in Europe. And UPS will be an integral part of that distributed manufacturing future. And I want to get to that future, but first, uh, maybe both Alan and Rick, just to give people a better idea of what you're talking about when you say Louisville, that's where our Worldport uh, location is in uh, that was kind of uh, where the partnership really took off. Yes. Can you guys speak to the work you're doing there and even what's changed since you started and some of the lessons you've learned? Yeah, so we started our our first real factory was in in Louisville, and the uh, you know the one of the things that that is truly advantageous it, when you need a critical part very quickly, uh, we were able to produce a part up till till midnight or even later and have that part delivered anywhere in the country by eight or nine o'clock that same next morning. For some companies and some specific applications, that's incredibly important, uh, and so that's been a key part of our our initial production, but. Prim- Primarily using legacy technologies, so some of the older technologies that um, where the costs have come down pretty dramatically, but where you're not able to produce the same quality end use part uh, material properties that you you are with some of the newer technologies that are available. So we've now set up a lab, uh, uh, our first micro factory in Chicago, where we've, we're integrating some of the old technologies, but a lot of the 
newer technologies in a very sophisticated way to really start experimenting and pushing the limits around what is possible with the new technologies that are coming out. And I think as we perfect not only the production process and the systems around that, but the the the, the supply chain integration systems uh, that 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 we're working on up there. That then the idea is that then you take that exact model and you start to stamp it out in in Louisville, in Europe, in Asia, in in uh, Dubai, or different different areas like that. So does that? How does that work? Like let's let's say you go ahead and you make it in Louisville or Chicago, and you you get an order for parts. Walk me through now the supply chain side. How does UPS then kind of get that out? Is it local or is it regional? So when we manufacture a part in Worldport, we can get it anywhere in the U.S. uh, by the next morning. And from a supply chain perspective, that's why integrating manufacturing into the current global network we have is key to our strategy because we already have hubs around the world that enable the same sort of quick delivery after manufacture that we have in the U.S., yeah, and I'd also stress the uh, you know one thing people fail to see is that they they have a, there's a number of misconceptions associated with 3D printing. You know, one is that it's just like the Jetsons; you push a button and whatever you want comes out in a completed form. I, I think for over the next you know ten years or so, you're going to see you know there's certainly some 3D. 3D printed parts, brackets, uh, you know, clips, different things that we're making as full individual pieces. But I think the vast majority are going to be pieces that are integrated into other parts that are made with other other different te- manufacturing technologies. And so, if you think of you know a shoe or some other item that you have where you want to create a customized name tag that goes alongside it, or let's say 3D printed Matchbox cars that have some traditional uh, manufacturing with a wheelbase and you know, things that you would clip in, but then you have one element that's 3D printed, you know, why would you not want to do that final production and assembly in a major distribution hub where a customer could place an order, you're managing traditional inventory of the other items, you 3D print the final part, you do final assembly, uh, kitting and distribution right out of the UPS hub, which UPS is already doing a number of those different types of things. It's a perfect integrated supply chain. So I'm going to ask you both a question, uh, and I will get you on the record, but I promise I won't play it back if you are uh, wrong, which you're not going to be, of course. But when, in your mind, do you expect us to get to the point where 3D printers are in homes? And by that, I mean this isn't just something that has an industrial production. This isn't just something that businesses are using in a supply chain sense. But this idea that Joe Blow in their house has a 3D printer and they want to make shoes. Something like that. Or How far, will it? Yeah. Is that is that too fantastical or is that something that you guys see coming in X number of years? I, I think that if that comes, and I never say never, it's it's probably 15, 20 years or more out. And I'll tell you why. I, I mean, we haven't even started to solve the problems that would need to be solved to make that happen. And, you know, hobbyists have 3D printers in their home today, but they only print one material and they're, they're typically fairly low cost printers. The printers that we're talking about that are industrial grade are uh, half a million dollars and up per printer. You're, it's, you're typically not going to buy that for your hobby and, you know, unless you're Jeff Bezos. <laughs> well, 
That's something we can all strive for, right? Right. Yeah. Do, do you think that's kind of in line with uh, your thinking too, Rick? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I have a 3D printer in my house. I had a wheel that broke on uh, on the tray of my dishwasher. Uh, I 3D, I scanned the part that broke. I 3D printed another one and strapped it right back on there. So, so yeah, there are oh, applications. That's, cool. that's what that, I'm talking about. You know, that, that exists. So your I answer think, is now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. So for, for some things, I think particularly on the hobbyist side, you know, prices are coming down, quality is coming up, and you'll have things that are accessible in the home that were never, you know, in the home. You think about what happened to computers. You know, the first mainframes filled up an entire wall, you know, or entire room, uh, $20 million. And then you have the evolution. All of a sudden you have PCs that are in the house, et cetera. But also think about, you know, what, what about the wafer chips that go into the computer chips that go into those computers? Um, the first ones were actually fairly simplistic. Uh, and I'm sure there are, you know, people with the right skill set that could probably make some of the earliest types of transistors in their house if they wanted to. But what happens is the the technology advances just as rapidly as the adoption advances. And so, and we're already seeing this. So, you know, for example, in the new technologies that have just come out, you know, we are we are accounting for a hundred different factors of variability when we produce a, an end-use part and an item for that. It is not uh, being able to plug a machine into a wall and maybe program a couple buttons and all of a sudden you get a perfect part that comes out of that. It's, that's We're not at all close to being there. Maybe we get to that point as these machines, the current machines become more sophisticated. But within five years, let's say the current machines are much more home user friendly. You're going to have a whole new set of machines that we're working with that are equally as complicated or more that are going are to require a very sophisticated operating system, particularly when you're talking about large companies that have a brand reputation, have a quality reputation, have liability for products. They can't trust someone at home to, you know, to make something that causes them to get injured or or at a minimum is makes them dissatisfied with the, with the product. So I think the vast majority of true end-use production parts is going to stay within uh, this type of sophisticated supply chain for, for quite a while. Seems like there's a huge sustainability part here that we could bring into the conversation where, you know, you have less travel. Traditionally, we were doing a lot of manufacturing out of China. So as we localize this, how how is that going to start to impact like, you know, anything from the environment, but also to cost savings for companies? So I'll, I'll start on that one. So that's actually one of the parts that I'm I'm most excited about because, you know, fundamentally what 3D printing does is allows a closer match between supply and demand. Traditionally, because you can't predict demand, you oversupply and you store and then uh, send it when the demand comes. Uh, and there's a tremendous amount of waste. And as you said, a lot of manufacturing is done in low-cost countries and then shipped all over. So from a supply chain perspective, there's going to be huge economies in lower fuel and lower carbon output, which is also going to translate to lower cost. The other thing is we're talking about additive manufacturing, not subtractive manufacturing, which is traditional where you start with a uh, you know a block of metal and you're shaving it away using machine tooling to come up with your your part. There's a tremendous amount of of material waste there that uh, doesn't happen in additive because an additive, other than the supports, 
you're not adding any material that isn't needed for the part. Yeah, I would say I would uh, I would I would mirror those those comments. I, I also come back to just the system itself. You know, probably the most obvious is you is you do reduce distribution if you're producing closest to demand. But being able there, there's so many products that are made where uh, you know, as you say, they, they, it is incredibly unpredictable how many of those parts you actually need. And you know, just one example uh, when a product is sort of toward the end of its life, the supplier basically says okay, you have one last time to order parts for this product and you got to make a guess because we're going to shut the whole system down beyond this point. And so you make this really crazy guess, typically way over guess in terms of the parts that you end up needing. Most of those parts end up getting thrown away. So when you think of sustainability and you say, hey, you know, I'm, as, a, as a consumer, I'm consuming this dollar, this part or the, whatever this product is, and then I'm going to end up throwing it away at some point. Well, it's not only that, it's that 30% more more of all those parts that were ever made are going to be thrown away in bulk at some point. And you can, el- you can start to eliminate all of that, you know, all of that waste. Yeah. It's, it's, it's basically you're, you're taking supply demand and flipping it on its head. Instead of making supply and hope for demand, you're getting the demand and then comes the supply. So, you know, that's the, that's the nirvana. Rick, a personal question for you. Uh, obviously, you have an entrepreneurial gene. You're CEO of Fast Radius. It's got to be there, I'm assuming. Uh, why, why 3D printing? What was your aha moment? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. I've had, uh, uh, um, and co-CEO, by the way, uh, got a great partner, Lou Rassi, uh, uh, involved with me. Actually, interesting, I, this is my fifth company. Uh, the other four were in a very different area, a lot of senior, very senior level executive networking collaboration types of businesses. And this was a complete left turn. Uh, it was an area where, again, I think I followed the business case a lot more than the technology. I really didn't know anything about the technology, but I knew a lot of heads of manufacturing and CEOs and heads of supply chain that were talking about, you know, wow, this is a pot of gold if someone can just enable it to happen. And I remember, uh, I actually, I, I called the CEO of a Fortune 50 company who was a friend of mine, mentioned that I was thinking about this space. And he said, you know, hey, can you, can you be here on Tuesday? So I said, oh, you know, I happen to be in your in your area. I wasn't in the area, but I flew up to see him, um, thinking that it would be a great catch up with the, you know somebody who would become a friend of mine. And I was escorted into the boardroom. It turned out the CEO, who I knew, was over in Europe traveling, uh, and there were seven people sitting on the boardroom who I had never met before, all of whom were in manufacturing and supply chain. And so I sat there with no knowledge. I couldn't spell three D printing at the time, and they asked me like, "What are you proposing that we do with this?" And without any answer at all, I basically leaned back and said. Well, before I answer, why don't you share how you're thinking about this? Uh, They talked for an hour and a half straight. I took 15 pages of notes, uh, got into the parking lot and literally called uh, called my friend on the phone from the parking lot and said, we just started a company. (laughs) Because I've seen, you know, (laughs) the demand is just so right in front of you. It's just a matter of when the technology can catch up. That's an amazing story. (laughs) And not to put you on the spot, but what do we need to get better at? As when I say we, I mean UPS. We're obviously doing a lot of new things, but yeah. what are some areas we need to grow in as we continue to uh, go down this path? Yeah, so that's a that's a great question, and I think that we have a history of innovation. It's it's you know less than half of one percent of companies ever make it to a hundred years old. So we've been doing something right for a long time, and I would say that one of the things that we are 
just lights out fantastic at is what I would call sustainable innovation. So how do we get better doing what we do today, selling to the same customers that we sell to today? And how do we do that? And we're, you know, through IE processes, automation, robotics, connecting technologies, we're doing some just unbelievable things and that are really helping our customers and help helping our business. I think where UPS and a lot of established companies trip up is how do we create new revenue streams? How do we take our capabilities and create new offerings to sell to new customers? And it may be the same customers, but different people within that, within that customer base. And that's what we're trying to do with 3D printing. But there's, you know, a lot of other opportunities there. And, and, you know, the way I like to look at it is we have we have these great assets in terms of people and IT prowess and engineering prowess. We have, you know, an unbelievable customer base. These are great assets. How can we use those assets to create new value, new revenue streams uh, that aren't core to our business today? And I think those are the real, every established company has a, uh, has a hard time developing those. But I would say if you just look at the changes that UPS has made over the last year, it's, I've been here 27 years. There has never been in my entire 27 years a better time to be an innovator at UPS than right now. Yeah, and I, I, I think that's a really great point. I have a different perspective as a non-UPS employee because I, <laughs> I speak to a lot of groups of, you know, have worked very closely with UPS employees around the world. And, and uh, you know, a lot of people ask and say, Rick, you know, wow, this is great. You know, you can customize production and, and, and use this new technology. But, you know, that's not really what we do, right? We, you know, we, we do these things. We do them really well. We've done the same thing for, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 years or 100 years. And, and we've gotten really good at that. And, 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 I, and so I point back to, well, you know, actually when UPS was founded, uh, it was founded right at the time of the, the introduction of the Model T around 1910, you know, give or take a couple of years. And the founder of UPS, one of the first things that they did is said, you know, wow, if all of a sudden transportation can be customized, then what can I use that technology for to change distribution? And that was really the, fu- the fundamental, you know, initial uh, value proposition for UPS is like, hey, if I can customize transportation, because I've got an automobile versus a, a rail system to take uh, products to the point of where, where they actually need to be delivered, then I can create an entire new, entirely new value proposition. And in effect, a hundred years, you know, almost to the day, a hundred years later, we're seeing exactly the same thing. Hey, if I can produce parts closest to demand and get them, you know, close critical parts where they need to be, but just instead of warehousing them and shipping them, I'm producing them and shipping them. Isn't that the same value proposition that UPS has already, has always really excelled at? Yeah. 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 I, I think a good place maybe to wrap up and it's what I keep hearing over and over again from both of you guys is this idea of whatever you do in business to keep growing and moving forward you need to move up the value chain. You need to find new ways to provide value to your customers. So even though at first blush, this is effectively shortening a lot of supply chains, which might not inherently seem great for a company that moves goods all around the world, what you're saying is we're bringing new value to customers and business value will follow. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the the analogy that I always use is from uh, – 
this piece that was developed in the 1960s called Marketing Myopia, where customers don't buy drills. They buy a way to make a hole, right? And so if all we're focused on is making a lower cost, the next best drill and everything, it's fine as long as nothing changes. And someone, importantly, someone doesn't figure out a better way to make a hole, right? So you've got to, you've got to bring up a level and say, okay, what is the fundamental value that UPS provides to our customers? And it's really, we're enabling commerce. We're, we're helping companies that make stuff, that produce stuff, design things, get those to the people that are actually going to use them. And we're that conduit. And what's changing is, is not the, the need, it's how that takes place. And so it's, you know, we're still going to need the, the infrastructure and the brown package cars and all that, but there are new ways to deliver that value. There are new ways to make a whole. And that's what's key to UPS, because as long as we're that uh, new value proposition, we're the ones making the whole, then we're going to continue to get the drills as well. And so that's what's that's what's important to our future. Yeah, and I would say you know the the um, you know these these customers, these heads of supply chain, have been trying to reduce physical inventory for as long as they've been working, right? For decades, they've had this discussion every single year with UPS. How do we decrease physical inventory? How do we make our supply chains more efficient? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think in particular, being a first mover, you know, partnering with UPS. It's, it's not just that, you know, hey, we, we know how to print a part, but you understand, okay, where are the real opportunities? I was just talking last week with the CEO who said, you know, oh, 3D printing, that's really interesting. I think the best opportunity for us is X. And I said, you know, that's a really interesting idea. That's not the best opportunity, but that's a, you know, great that you brought that up. And so being able to guide them, to, you know, because we've seen all the mistakes and the successes, we're seeing them actually play out in real time, to be able to guide them to here are the really big opportunities, but even more important, to be able to bring that to life, that, you know, you know, not only do you need to be able to produce this or you need designers that can design in a certain way, but you're going to need a supply chain that looks, that has all of these different elements or, or it's just not accessible to you to get these great benefits. And I think that's what, you know, UPS has been, uh, you know, has been great at. It's really bringing these new opportunities to the customers and then helping them, helping enable them to actually take advantage of, of the new possibilities. That's right. It's, uh, it's not about what we make. It's about what we make possible well there you go on that inspiring note i think this is a great place to close and on a side note rick if a part breaks on my dishwasher i can show up at your doorstep right <laughs> that's right great that's thanks good. again guys yeah thanks All for right, joining us